Let me begin uh, with a question. Uh, it might sort of be a foregone sort of question, but have you ever been in a situation where what's going on with you, mind and emotions, feels out of sync with what's going on around you? Sort of feels like there's a little bit of a disconnect there, right? I'm sure all of us have kind of experienced that before. And let me give you a personal example. might seem a little bit silly, but the first time I went to Columbia, South Carolina, to uh, meet my wife's family, it was the weekend of my 23rd birthday, and I really thought little of it, honestly. It wasn't a big deal to me, but when I got there, her family had planned a party for me with cake and gifts and decorations, including those napkins, you know, that are printed and colorful but don't actually work. They just smear everything around, right? They had those. They had everything. And most of Ashley's family is local. They live in the Midlands. And so there were aunts and uncles and grandparents on both sides, mind you, and cousins on both sides, eager to meet me. And they were serenading me with the happy birthday song. Now, for some of you uber introverts, a little part of your soul just died thinking about being in that moment, didn't it? What? Right? Um, you know, that's a moment. The happy birthday song is a moment that's kind of awkward anyway, even if you know everyone who is there. It really is. How many children have you seen either cry or crawl under the table while everyone is ogling them and singing happy birthday to them, right? It's strange, even if it's common. And it's probably another example of how the extrovert powers are oppressing the introvert proletariat like us in our society. I'm kidding, of course, a little bit. Um, seriously, it was really thoughtful of them. And that's who Ashley's family are. They're just so thoughtful. They celebrate so well. But it was extra awkward for me because my family, another layer is that my family just didn't do big birthdays after like the age of 13. We went out to eat, maybe to the movies, to a ball game, something like that. There were gifts and there was money to spend at the mall or Sports Authority, if you remember Sports Authority. Um, mom baked a cake or we went out and just and got ice cream. It was pretty chill, right? It, that's kind of... It's just the way we did it. And now some of you uber celebrators and extroverts are thinking, oh, you know, I hope Seth has a really good therapist. <laughs> he was never celebrated as a kid. That's not true. I never felt shorted. I never felt, you know, like, um, you know, being low-key was, was wrong. It was, it was who I was. It was who my family is. But anyway, in this moment in Columbia, I pushed through. You'll be happy to know. I pushed through the happy birthday song and all of that attention. But what was going on inside me was decidedly not in sync <laughs> with what was going on around me. And it might not be obvious to us today, um, you know, at first, but if we pay attention actually to the whole, the wider story that's before us, we'll realize that what we call Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem had this kind of disconnection for him. And the celebration going on around him and the meaning of the moment fostered an understandable kind of tension within him. It was a prophetic tension that um, heightened this burden that he was carrying for his people and for us on this journey that only at this point he knew was leading to his imminent death on the cross. Only he knew. And this is what I want us to explore for a few moments today and where I think that actually the richness of Palm Sunday uh, is really found as, we, as Palm Sunday really is our gateway. It's our journey into Holy Week and toward Easter. So let me first give you some background. The road, they're coming from Jericho. The road from Jericho to Jerusalem is roughly 17 miles. It was a dangerous road. Bandits and all sorts of things could have overtaken you. There was plenty of elevation gain there. It's a hard road. 
And so with his disciples, Jesus had already walked most of it on their way to Jerusalem for the Passover. And so within, with the city in view from Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, they're able to look down. And, and, and what does Jesus do? He sends for a young donkey. And they're like, we've already walked like 16 miles. What, you know, we need a donkey now, right? It's not that it, because his feet were tired. And however trivial this errand may have seemed to his disciples at the time, it was deeply prophetic. Uh, and honestly, by now, his disciples understood that when Jesus says do it, you just do it. You're not necessarily going to understand it, but let's do what he says for us to do. And they did. And now Matthew, we get this gospel reading this year in the lectionary. He pulls in the meaning right away in verses 4 and 5, doesn't he? Quoting Zechariah, Zechariah 21, he says, This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so the people of Israel had always understood that Zechariah's prophecy, to, uh, they, they understood that it referred to the Messiah, to God's anointed king and deliverer. And so when Jesus called for him, when Jesus mounted the donkey, he was embodying that prophecy. He was saying, see, your king does come to you in this moment. First century Jews, uh, they were well-versed in all, particularly in the Messianic and the Davidic scriptures, very important to them. So many people in the crowd, they would have taken notice of this. They would have understood something's going on here. Many would have even recalled that when Solomon, who was the wise temple builder and the literal son of David, when he became Israel's king, what? He was presented on a donkey, his father's donkey. It's in 1 Kings 1. So Matthew gives his readers and gives us a, a clue that the people of Jerusalem, they recognized the connection as they cried out. Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna to the son of David. And we'll come back to the word Hosanna in a moment. But by using the title son of David, they already know this, this moment is rich with this acclamation of Jesus to be their rightful king. But what we find out is what they meant by their rightful king and what Jesus meant would be two different things. You may not know this, but there's an even older prophecy that explains why Jesus rode on a donkey. You have to go back to Genesis 48, uh, long before the prophet Zechariah. You have Jacob pronouncing this blessing on his son Judah. He says, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. He will tether his donkey to a vine his cult to the choicest branch. Now, Jacob was not a prophet, we know, one of the patriarchs, to be sure, but in this moment, he's seeing his line. He's seeing this moment, at least vaguely, and prophesying. His prophecy meant that the Messiah would come from his own tribe, or from Judah's tribe, and Jesus, we know, was born into the tribe of Judah. And in John 15, though, this is really rich, during his farewell discourse to his disciples, he described himself using the metaphor of what? A vine. And his chosen disciples were the branches connected to and drawing all their fruitfulness from him. Now, Jesus' public ministry of divine power and prophetic wisdom and vision, it was reaching a climax right here at this Passover, his last Passover in Jerusalem. Surely he was there to in their minds to deliver Israel from their Roman oppressors. It's very obvious what our problem is. That's what he's here for. And so the Psalms of Ascent that they sang every year that they came for the Passover, um, when they made their way to Jerusalem, they were now directed toward him. It's finally happening. He's come. Their king had finally come in the name of the Lord, in God's authority, and to do, what God, do God's bidding, which surely is to overthrow 
as he's always done those who would oppress and exile his people. And as they shouted and they sang, they did what? They waved palm branches. Why would they do such a thing? Well, 200 years before Jesus, Israel had actually won a temporary independence from the Seleucid Greeks who were their overlords at the time. And during this seven-year Maccabean, you know, it began with a revolt and then it became an independence that lasted 70 years. The Jews were actually independent enough to mint their own coins, have their own currency. And what did they put on it? A palm. And so the palm was emblematic of the cultural and the religious liberty that they had won. The palm became like, think of it this way, a national flag for Israel. That's how they thought of it, a a sign of victory, a sign of uh, their independence from foreign power, from, from foreign pagan cultural influence. This was a heightened moment. They're waving their flag and then they're shouting, Hosanna, which is not so much a word of praise as it was a prayer. It was a prayer that comes from Psalm 118. Oh, Lord, save us. Save us now. There's an urgency to it. And so by waving these palms, by shouting Hosanna to the Son of David, they were crying out with a, with a sense of confidence that Jesus is here to overthrow Caesar with all his pagan governors and his corrupt client kings. This is a watershed. It's exciting. It's hopeful. And they had a very clear sense, or so they thought, of what was going on here. Now, with all that going on, What's going on inside Jesus? This is what we're meant to see. We might picture him kind of bobbing up and down, right, on the donkeys, waving and enjoying the welcome. We kind of, maybe we sort of imagine it that way, knowing deep down that he's like, yeah, it's going to be a hard road, but I'm going to be king anyway, so why not enjoy the moment? And I'm not being, trivializing that. I'm just saying we might picture it as such, that Jesus is just soaking in this moment of praise and adulation. But Luke's account of this, his final descent into Jerusalem, tells us a different story. He records this, that Jesus was weeping over the city. What a profound disconnection going on there. He's weeping over the city when it came into view, and Luke says that he said, Would that you, even you, Jerusalem, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. The rest of the Jewish world of his people were there for the feast of the Passover, but Jesus is heartbroken as he drew near to the city into a celebration that completely misunderstood his arrival and his kingdom. His passion, his suffering, began before he ever set foot in Jerusalem. He's weeping over the city. His prophetic imagination is just throbbing in pain at what's going on in that moment. They don't know, they don't see at what lay in store for the holy city and for God's people. For them, all the anxiety and all the fear that they have known living under the Roman boot in occupied Jerusalem, it found temporary relief, at least, you know, in in the prospect of this powerful king, this miracle-working king sent from God who's going to come. He's going to overthrow their pagan cohorts, surely. He's going to overthrow their generals and their kings and their systems and their ways and their culture. Anxiety and fear getting temporary relief. And maybe we can actually relate to this a little bit. We can't relate to foreign occupation, right? And oppression, certainly, but maybe we can relate to what animates that kind of anxiety in search of relief. I think we can. There's a a large-scale study that's done every year by Chapman University, and it gives 1,200 people a list of 92 fears to assess. 
I mean, that is not a survey I want to take where like, are you afraid of this? How afraid are you of you are this? Like 92 of them. From germs and unemployment to natural disasters and terrorism. And so they asked them, how afraid are you of each of these 92? So rank them from not at all afraid to very afraid. Do you know which one garnered the highest number of afraid or very afraid among respondents in 2022? No, it was not public speaking. And no, it was not death. It was corrupt government officials. 62% were either afraid or very afraid of corrupt government officials. More people are afraid or very afraid of bad government than the sickness or death of loved ones, polluted water, or an economic collapse. That vulnerability of bad government, maybe, maybe this explains our growing obsession with national politics as a religious faith and spiritual hope decline in the West. Maybe our anxiety about government has us and our neighbors increasingly hoping in our politics. Maybe that's how we'll fix it. If it goes our way, it can save us now. But here's an interesting thought. It comes from Reinhold Niebuhr, who was a very influential ethicist and theologian, um, particularly for Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. He said this. He said, anxiety is the context for sin. Not its cause, but the context. What did he mean by that? Think about it with me. He explained it. He said, a lack of faith is the cause of sin. But when we fail to trust in the infinite God, we live our lives anxiously, restlessly, Always trying to, this is the key, always trying to extend ourselves with finite things that cannot support the weight we put on them. So it leads to anxiety and fear. He said at bottom, we want security. We all want security. And when it's shaky, the anxiety builds and we are more apt to put the weight on one idol or another. And then we compound the fear because our idols let us down. So what must it have felt like to Jesus that all these people were cheering for someone else? A different kind of Messiah. For an idea he didn't embody, a political idol that could not bear the real weight. There they were. They were like we would be, throwing themselves at a version of the messianic project that would not only disappoint, but in the, in the next generation would destroy all of Jerusalem. They were crying out for Saul, standing head and shoulders above even Caesar. They're crying out for, for David on a war horse and not Isaiah's suffering servant who comes humble and riding on a donkey. They didn't understand what their visitation meant. And so on an earlier visit to Jerusalem, Jesus is already feeling this, this tension and this pain. He says, he says this, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. It's an interesting image, isn't it? Jesus, a hen. A picture of chicks running tiny and vulnerable out in the open. This is how Jesus saw people who lashed out against their prophets and against their truth, the truth. A few years ago, I don't know, it was probably five or six now, we visited my cousin Meg who lives in a little town of Carthage, North Carolina. She had seven or eight chickens and one of them was brooding. Have you ever seen a chicken brooding? One person, all right. <laughs> you know, 
We're not on the farm anymore, are we? We're not in an agrarian society anymore. So I had never seen this phenomenon at all. But the thing was, she had no chicks of her own, but she was brooding. She was brooding, and she was, you know, inconsolable and kind of spreading her wings and running low to the ground and squatting and groaning as she scooted about. And she was locked into this state of protection and urgency. But about 10 minutes after we got there, uh, we arrived. And Megan, my, my cousin, was showing up, and she was bringing six new chicks. And she put them on the ground, and then she carried this flustered, brooding hen over, and, um, and she put it down and tucked all the little chicks under, you know, really, really close to this hen. And in a matter of moments, she started to settle down. And then she abruptly, you know, a few minutes later, she stood up, and she started walking with them, and they bopped around, following her as best they could through the tall grass, and it was just a beautiful little picture. But before that, this urgency and this, this protection that she was feeling, and inevitably, it made me think about this image, what Jesus is saying and what he's feeling, these words of longing from him about Jerusalem, about my own heart, when I would rather go under my own protection and lean on my own understanding, and Jesus longs to gather us and to gather his people when we would just customize our own Savior, right, and the sort of salvation that we think we need that cannot hold the weight. It made me think about Jesus' aching heart to gather his people, to gather you, to gather me, to gather Village Church, and to gather Greenville in a world that's living in anxiety and fear right now. And I don't know if it's getting better. But he wants to gather us if we are willing. That's why we're here. So friends, here we are. We're on another Palm Sunday. We're remembering you know, the excited and the relieved cries of the crowd a week before the darkness fell. Save us now. Blessed is he who comes. All the miracles, all the wisdom, surely he will complete the program. What program? They've aimed at Rome, and we do too. But Rome turns out to have been a tiny historic pinhole in the fabric of the real problem. Same problem that we have of corrupt power and greed and political poison in our fractured society today. The same problem of prosperous economies that widen the margin between rich and poor. We just do it like a reflex. The same problem of shallow relationships and broken covenants and disordered desires. It's the same problem. From that mountain on that donkey, carrying the burden of this tension, Jesus descended alone. Like emotionally and mentally alone. When everything around him seems to be going another direction, he's already suffering. I think that's what we're meant to see on Palm Sunday. The Father was not going to send a legion of angels to rescue him, and Jesus was not going to call for them. He rode down the mountain with us as his burden. He entered Jerusalem one last time to become, I think, kind of a cosmic leper if you will, willing to be isolated from everything good, from every comfort, to suffer the rampage of what sin ultimately becomes. It's not just isolated to what we do or don't do. It's become systemic, socially, politically, and religious, and it becomes a kind of violence, and it did, and it's centered right there on him and on the cross. He rode down the mountain to endure the effects of this collective reality that we're always creating every day in our lives. 
by bending away from God, bending away from justice, bending away from holiness and goodness and, the, 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 and beauty that the world wants or that, that the Lord wants for his world. We do this one selfish, one nearsighted act at a time. And so this is why we begin Holy Week, coming down the mountain with Jesus, to bend back toward the Lord and toward justice, to what Jesus knew as he came into Jerusalem, to be with God, the God who came to be with us. We come together to cast our finest, but still filthy garments before him as he comes. That by a season of devotion, as we say, by interrupting this drumbeat of our own anxious concessions, by our, our self-making, even our self-righteousness, we can hear him crying out again, even over our voices. If we're in him and he is in us, as he said, and I believe that he is, and we are, then let's just go further and deeper with him this week. He went to the depths of death, and what did he do? He offered us life. It's for us to be willing and to receive it again, to, 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 to receive this life beyond the fear and the anxiety that just always manufacture lesser gods, and they, they manufacture weaker salvations and a world of entropy and a world of loss. The pattern repeats. So this week, we return to the place where Jesus still longs to gather us. Where is that? the cross where his love his forgiveness and his peace which we so badly need they triumph over death over every enemy of our souls even when we are confused about what those enemies really really are so let's go to the cross this week that's the invitation there's life there there's peace there's relief and it will save us now and it will continue to save us to the uttermost. Lord, that's our prayer that you would do your will, that it would be done on earth as it is in heaven, that we've done in our hearts. And this week, Lord, we confess every last one of us has been bending away from you and away from justice in some way or another this week. But you invite us back. You want to gather us back at the foot of the cross to be able to see that how great is this salvation that we have in you. We're willing. Lord, make us willing. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.